from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, welcome to a cram-packed School for Startups Radio. We have two amazing guests and long interviews, so I need to be really fast. In the bottom half of the show, we have the best AI conversation I've ever had with Glenn Gao. He takes a business example and walks us through how an entire plan could be written in chat GPT. Amazing stuff. We will do that in a minute. But first, we have the CEO of Dale Carnegie with us. His great story starts right now. I'm very excited to introduce my first guest today. His name is Joe Hart. He started his career as an attorney. He is now the CEO of Dale Carnegie. Of course, you have heard of him and maybe you know about their ongoing training programs and the incredible classes that they offer. He became president there in 2015 after a very successful career. Finally, he left law, thank goodness had some time in real estate and started an e-learning company that he sold five years later. As the CEO at Dale Carnegie, he has won some significant awards, including being named one of the 12 most transformative leaders by the CEO forum. He has a podcast called Take Command and recently just released a new five-star book on that Amazon place called Take Command. Find your inner strength, build enduring relationships, and live the life you want. Joe Hart, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? I'm great, Jim. Thank you for that kind introduction. Uh, our pleasure. All right, take command. What's the thesis of the book? What are we What are we going to learn? It's all about being intentional. I mean, so often we look at our lives and and they pass us by. And, you know, you get to the very end and you say, gosh, I wish I had done the things that were really important to me. And taking command is really about living the life that you want. It starts with taking command of your thoughts and your emotions, right? People have anxiety and worries and fears. How do you develop inner strength and resilience and courage and confidence? And, and once you do that, how do you Take command of your relationships. I mean, so much of our lives are about the quality of our relationships. If we've got great relationships at work, we can thrive and succeed. If we've got great relationships in our lives, we, we could be very happy. And then it's about taking command of our future. What's the future we want to live? Um, do we think about that, that vision for ourselves? Or, you know, I mean, probably just like you, you uh, Jim, like me, you know, it's like it's easy just for the days to, days to turn into weeks and months. And all of a sudden, it's like, gosh, how did I get here? You know, so taking command is about thinking about what you want to achieve in your life and working backwards and making it happen every day. But you see, Joe, you don't understand that I have an MRI on my shoulder next week and I have this mortgage that you don't know about. And my two kids and my wife and I are dealing with these issues and the cat has to have a hysterectomy and we're going to remodel, but we don't have the money and stuff. So I, I don't really have the ability to be intentional right now. I got to deal with what's coming down the pike. I don't, I, I don't have that luxury right now. You Maybe you do, but I don't. I would say it's especially in times like this that we need to be intentional because 
you know, it's like anything else. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, what you described as the boat without a rudder. It's kind of floating around and it's like all these other things are driving it. But, you know, ultimately we have choice and we have choice, you know, first of all, about how we, we process things. You know, do we see all those things that you just said as, uh, is, is challenges as things that are going to you know ruin my day, my week, my month, whatever, or are they, gosh, you know, I mean, uh, I, 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 these are great opportunities. These are things that, that ultimately can, can, uh, make my life better or happier. So, um, but I mean, so much of this depends on the stories we tell ourselves. If we say I'm too busy to be intentional, then, then what have I done? I've just, I've, I've disempowered myself from choice. I've said, I, I just, I'm, I'm a victim to circumstances and, and that's, that's really not a great place to be. I went to architecture school for a while, Joe, and, uh, had to drop out because my first business was too time consuming. And so I never fulfilled my dream of becoming an architect. But one of the things I learned there is that really big obstacles can be really great, uh, motives. They can be, uh, provide great opportunity. And the example we learned in architecture school is that there was this horrible piece of land left over in the mall in Washington, D.C. No one wanted to build on it because it had this weird 19 and a half degree angle in it uh, because of the roads and such. And I.M. Pei took it and used that 19 and a half degree angle as the thesis for the building and the the, the whole building is designed on 19 degree angles. And it's now the... Uh, one of the art museums, maybe modern. I don't know which, I don't want to say incorrectly which one of the museums it is, but it's a, a masterpiece of architecture. How can my double mortgage MRI needing shoulder be a national treasure of architecture? Well, I mean, the, the example you gave of the piece of land is a piece of land. Someone said, hey, this is useless. And somebody, someone else said, I can, I can find a way to make this valuable. You know, I, I look at your MRI and your shoulder, by the way, I, I need to get one as well. So, um, you know, but, but th this is, this is a stage in repair. My shoulder is going to be better when it's, when it, it's fixed. Um, my cat is going to be healthier when it's fixed. Um, you, you got a mortgage. Thank goodness you got a house, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different ways you can look at it, but here's, here's the thing, Jim, I think, you know, two people can have the exact same set of circumstances the house, the mortgage, the shoulder, whatever, two people can be in the same situation. One person is miserable and down and negative and, and kicking the cab, so to speak, proverbially, you know, and somebody else is like, Hey, you know, they're, they're, they're thriving. What's the difference? The difference is what we think. And, and the question is, where, where do we want to be? You know, how do we, do we want to be that person who's just, do you want to be around a person who's always um, just really down and so forth? Now, I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that we should walk around with, uh, you know, rose colored glasses and so forth. We've got problems. We've got adversities. And I, I think about, you know, uh, COVID, the COVID situation, um, certainly in terms of how it affected the world and individuals and businesses. Um, and at the same time, you know, and our, our business was greatly challenged uh, during COVID. We, we, we chose to look for opportunity. We came through it much stronger, digitally transformed, poised for, for growth, um, you know, and, but, but part of that was looking for opportunity. When, when we have the mindset that says, hey, look, I'm going to look for opportunity here. Where is it? We will often find it. All right. How do I control my emotions? 
how do we do that? You know, uh, bad things happen. Kid in car wreck, uh, divorces, bankruptcies. How do we wake up and say, that's actually a good thing. And I'm going to be the happy, positive guys. Cause I want people to want to be around me today, but I'm bankrupt. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually I, I wouldn't say that that's the right course necessarily. I mean, part of it is, is not to look at that and say, Hey, this is, and maybe I, I, I don't want to be um, unclear about this. There are really bad things that happen in life, and and we need to acknowledge those things. Um, there are deaths of loved ones. There are there's illness. There's you know God forbid loss of children. There's all kinds of just you lose your job. There's all all kinds of things, and and you know we have emotions, and we have emotions for a reason. And and, and grieving is 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 a natural emotion that that we should have in the face of some of those kinds of things. So, so the question is not about, uh, you know, how do I, I put a smile on my face and just be happy? And I, I don't mean to imply that. Uh, it is to take a step back, two things. Number one, and to say, uh, to recognize, you know, I, I've got control over how I handle the situation, um, how, I, how I want to move forward. I lose my job and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm miserable about it, but there are, Dozens and hundreds and thousands of stories of people who lost their jobs and started a company or, or ended up finding some other way to handle it. So the point is simply, you know, we, we need to move forward with intentionality in terms of emotions. You know, and I, I have this conversation Jim, with my kids about how, you know, it's, it's easier to say than to do. We may be really down about something or, or, or moody about something. But what we talk about. In, in Take Command and what Dale Carnegie talked about in How to Stop Worrying and Start Living is, you know, just trying to identify and understand what it is that we're, we're feeling and, um, and kind of work, working through that a little bit. Is the feeling um, serving me? What is the feeling telling me? Um, you know, how do I, how do I want to feel? I mean, there's a process we go through in Take Command and certainly Dale Carnegie I mean, the, the How to Stop Worrying and Start Living book is one of the most uh, successful books of all time. It's certainly one of his two most successful books. And it's because it helps people to equip, equip them with things like, hey, how do you manage your worry? How do you reduce your stress? How do you move forward in a constructive way? So, I mean, that, that's what I'd say. What about, I have a problem of going to sleep at night. My mind is just racing, you know, uh, great ideas. I interviewed a uh, number one hotelier in the world the other night, and he said his great quote that I remember was, dreams are what most people do when they're asleep. My dreams keep me awake. And I have that problem. I just sit there at night, and my mind goes crazy. How do I control my thoughts while I'm trying to fall asleep? I, I can only tell you that from personal experience, because for years, uh, I, I struggled with sleep. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, couldn't get back to sleep, my mind thinking about all kinds of things. And, um, and you know, I, I'd say there's a couple different ways to look at it. Some people are very creative and, and you know, will actually leverage that time. You wake up in the middle of the night, you have thoughts, you, you, you put them down, um, you know, and, and, and I've, I've did that a couple nights ago. I was up for, for a bit and then went back to bed. But, um, you know, it, it, sometimes you don't have the flexibility to sleep in necessarily, so you might be a little tired. But, you know, I, I have found that um, a lot of what the thoughts can be at night are worries. 
and their worries about things that, that in all likelihood are never going to happen or may not be anywhere near as, as bad as, as we think they're going to be. So, so developing a skill set or a mindset to be able to manage stress and worry and that's what Dale Carnegie's book was about. And, and, and let me just give you a couple of different techniques that he, he talked about that, that might help you with your sleep. You know, one is live in daytight compartments. That's a principle. Now you think about like a submarine that it has airtight compartments. You've got, you can close the doors and water will not get in on either side. We have 24 hours, every single one of us in, in a day. And, you know, if we look at the beginning of the day and the end of the day and say, this is the time that I have. I'm not going to worry about what, what's going to happen in the future. It, it may never happen. You know, I may, I may think about uh, or prepare myself, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on what I have to do today. And, and it may be, Jim, that a lot of those thoughts that you have are worry-related. So when you learn how to control your worry, those things uh, go away. For me, th that's been a game changer. I sleep great at night, thank goodness. And it wasn't always the way, but, but I've really, over time, developed a mindset to process things so that I'm not worried about them at night. The second thing he, he or another thing, he, there's a whole book of techniques in here, but, but one other technique is about, you know, uh, ask yourself what's the worst that can happen. And, you know, just think about what's the worst possible thing that can happen and recognize in all likelihood, it probably isn't going to happen. But even if it does, you prepare to accept the worst and then work backwards. And again, it goes back to this idea of taking command, which is once you start to put yourself in a, a mindset of, all right, it's not, it's probably, what, what can I do? How can I be intentional? Um, often those, those worries will go away. But I, I, I just know from personal experience, I know exactly from which you speak. And, uh, and thankfully, because I've learned, and we talk about some of those techniques and take command, and certainly those are in Dale Carnegie's books, but, but because of those, I, I sleep very well at night. The technique that I've learned that I find the most successful is I dream about being appointed president and I have 98% approval, Joe. And just about every law that I propose gets passed and works immediately and a hundred percent effectively. And, uh, the world is a nice, happy place. Um, and I fantasize that and eventually fall asleep to that. All right. Well, that's sound, sounds like a, a, a pleasant, uh, dream, you know, you're my secretary uh, of state, Joe. Yeah. I, I I'm right there with you. When yes. do we want to run? So how do I use this to take command of my relationships? So Maybe I'm doing better with my thoughts now and I can expand the circle. Let's talk about relationships. Well, you know, I think uh, one of the things we talk about, you know, often we will, we will think about relationships. First of all, we may not even think about relationships at all. And, and I think that's the first part of it is to be intentional about relationships. Who are the important people in our lives? What are the kind of relationships we want with them? How do we build trust? How do we, you know, and, and by the way, and this is where Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, best-selling book, 87 consecutive years, he, he really uh, talks about this. And, you know, what we know is that if you want to build great relationships with people, you need to be intentional about it. We need to listen to people, not do all the talking ourselves, talking about ourselves. We should ask questions about other people. Um, you know, we want to respect different points of view. We don't want to be, uh, you know, just completely critical and so forth. I mean, Principle one, don't criticize, condemn, and complain. Doesn't mean that we're not going to offer constructive feedback, 
But then the question is, well, how do you do that? So, so that intentionality starts with who you know I want relationships with. Maybe it's at work. It's a, it's it's a boss, a supplier, it's coworkers, it's customers. You know, maybe it's it's around family. You know, we got Thanksgiving coming up, and not too long. And often this is a source of tension for people because they have great relationships with people and their families. You know, so so th- there are a number of different things that we can do, but. Um, you know, what, what we also find is that the number one thing that uh, undermines relationships, well, maybe two things. One is certainly violating trust. So we need to be mindful about doing the things that we say we're going to do and so forth, but also being critical, being negative. And, and, and uh, you know, how do we deliver uh, feedback? How do we um, disagree with someone agreeably? And again, those are all things that we teach in the Dale Carnegie course and how to win friends and influence people and, and take command. How do we disagree with someone, especially when their politics are just so clearly, obviously, 100% wrong? I mean, only a moron would think that. You know, Joe, what? Oh, only a, an idiot can think what you think. How, yeah, how do just, I tell you that politely at the Thanksgiving dinner table? That, yeah, so the, the drunkle. Yes. Step one is, is you don't say that, right? I mean, that's one of the things that, 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 that often happens. The first thing is we got to check our emotion, right? I mean, so even developing emotional control so that, that um, you know, we, we even hearing things. So, 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 Jim, someone says something that you find completely offensive. The first, the first thing is, can you uh, even, can you listen to it? Um, and that's, and, and let's just pretend you're talking to the drunk or you're talking to the person who's at the table. And, and instead of immediately jumping in and saying, you're wrong, you're an idiot, you're stupid. You say, huh, tell me more about that. I'd like to understand a little bit more about your perspective. I mean, he, he might even be disarmed, but, but, you know, when we listen to people, we give them a chance, give it, give them a chance to, to express himself, ask questions about that. Now you may want to then you've got a different point of view. So how do you, how do you express that? Um, you know, there, there's a, a formula we teach in Dale Carnegie that talks about, you know, starting with, with, with facts first and ultimately, you know, kind of a cushion and, and facts and, and then getting to a conclusion. Um, you know, so it's not just you think this, I think that, but it does start with, you know, uh, respecting the person, giving them a chance to speak. And then when you have an opportunity, I'll explain your point of view. And again, you know, so this, this can be very, very effective in, in interacting with other people. I'm not saying it's going to be going to be effective with the person who's who's drunk and opinionated and so forth, but certainly we have the ability not to let things spiral out of control. We have the ability, um, you know, to to ultimately, if we've got boundaries, to articulate our boundaries. Say, you know what, I really don't think we should talk about this. We have we have different points of view, and we're not going to see eye to eye, and. you know, Dale Carnegie has another principle, principle 10, which is the only way to get the best of an argument is to avoid it. Not doesn't mean we're going to not articulate our views, but, you know, often just arguing and going back and forth and, and you're wrong and you're wrong. That's just, that's just, that's, there's nothing productive that comes from that. Oh, but it makes Thanksgiving. Oh, so much fun for everyone else. Uh, I guess maybe, you know, can I, can I come to your Thanksgiving and just, I'll just watch your family. That sounds like, uh, if I can do that, maybe that'll, that'll be fun. 
Uh, our family is when I started dating my wife and started trying to figure out how her family related to each other. I realized eventually that there were no straight lines in her family and all of the relationships were dotted, you know, her grandmother mm -hmm. was a fake grandmother through marriage, you know, and her cousins were, it was just, it's the people you choose to hang out with, not the ones you have to. So, uh, anyway, hers, her family was easy to integrate into that way. Cause very little friction there. So talk to me about intentionality with careers and such. And I kind of want to look at it through different decades, perhaps maybe if you could address being a 20 year old, 25 year old, and not knowing what you want, how do we be intentional? If we just don't know what we want to do, I, I don't, I don't know versus maybe in your fifties when you still want to be intentional. And as you said, at the very beginning, you want to die having done all of the things you wanted to do. What if I'm 50, 55 and say, well, I haven't done these four or five things and I've got the double mortgage and et cetera to deal with. How do we be intentional late in life? So address the twenties first, please. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think just to go to the, to the younger generation uh, and certainly you and I were talking separately about our kids or, or around this age, some of them. And, and I know a lot of young people, one of the biggest things that they struggle with is comparing themselves to other other young people. You look on social media, you see what other people are doing, you feel like I should have that. And, and there's, I think this pervasive idea when you're young that you should know exactly what you do. You should know what you're going to major in. You should have that first job in your career track figured out. And what you and I know, based upon maybe some years of wisdom, is that, that that's not necessarily the case. You know, when you're younger, you know, really, the, the number one thing you should be doing, in, in my humble opinion, is is learning about the things that you like and learning as much as you can to to be productive. And, you know, so if you're 20, 21, 22, 23, 25, you, you're, it's, it's okay to be figuring that out. So intentionality at that age, you know, really is about, hey, I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn and I'm going to figure out what I'm good at. I'm going to figure out the things that I enjoy. I'm going to figure out how I can make a, a productive living doing that. And I'm going to take some of the pressure off, uh, you know, to, to, to make $100 million by the time I'm 30, you know, or whatever it is that the people think they're going, they're going to do. But, but that would, and, and I, I'd also say too, overcoming fear. I mean, fear holds us back, you know, so the person, especially when, when you're younger, you know, you worry about how you're perceived. You worry about, I can never call that person and ask to take them to lunch to learn about what they did when they were my age. You know, take a chance. Uh, I, I can only tell you from my own experience, the number of people that I called that I was terrified to call and I called and they were, they were like, sure, I'll talk to you. I'll help you. I think, you know, if we have the right mindset, you know, we, we, we'd be willing to take chances, but that's all part of intentionality. And, you know, when you, when we're older, you know, sometimes we then get into this kind of uh, victim mentality, which is, oh, gosh, you know, I should have done this or I regret this or I'm, I'm here and I can't do this. You know, and, and, and look, and I, I want to be clear, too. I'm not saying that, you know, the goal is is to, you know, uh, do everything we've ever wanted to do before we die. If you can, that's, that's, that's fine. But um, it, it is to have to do things that are, are meaningful and, and that, that uh, fuel us. And those could be small or those could be big. But it is to have the, the idea, the mindset that 
uh, you know, notwithstanding maybe where I am in my life, I can stop and ask myself, what are the things that are important? What are my values? What's my, my purpose as I define it for myself and start to take steps in that direction. You know, my father uh, in his seventies had always wanted to do stand-up comedy and he decided to take a, a stand-up comedy class and to go out and do stand-up comedy. And he did it and he was really darn good. Um, but somebody else might be like, oh, I can't do that. I'm too old. I'm too this. I'm too that. And that, that goes back to that, that first thing we talked about, about mindset and, and the things that, the things we tell ourselves, we should challenge those things and, and be willing to take a chance. And that's part of what intentionality is about. That's cool that your father became the standup. My dad got his MBA in his sixties, late sixties. For no reason whatsoever, other than I think he wanted to see if he could get better grades than I did in graduate yeah. school. Uh, my father was in, he got to college when he was 16, and he had some of the same professors that his father had had, taking the exact same class, was able to go back and compare his grades versus his father's grades. Uh, and so he enjoyed doing the same thing with me. And I don't know. We enjoyed competing on that level academically. So it is cool. Uh, those sort of intentionality. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes left, Joe. We haven't said that entrepreneur word, and this is an entrepreneur show. I have several entrepreneurial, uh, beliefs, thesis points that I cling to. I'm not a big fan of creativity. I think if you want to be an entrepreneur, you should just go copy someone else's idea instead of waiting for the lightning bolt from God. I don't really like risk. I think you can probably figure out if most businesses are going to work for under $5,000 if you do it right. I don't really like passion for entrepreneurs. I think that passion is reserved for the church, synagogue, the mosque, and the bedroom, and every once in a while, the living room. And you got a bunch of kids that y'all were all over the house, I guess. Uh, <laughs> passion is not about business. I like what I do. Uh, I would rather be at Disney with my kids. I would rather be doing a lot of stuff. And so you, if you have passion for your work, I'm really concerned with you because you should have passion for something else other than work. Work should be like nine on the list, or, or no matter how good it is. What are some of your obsessions or beliefs when it comes to entrepreneurship specifically, Joe? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I can relate to what you said, having started a business from nothing and leaving a very successful career, and this is you know, 23 years ago. And, um, you know, I, I guess I, I had a conviction and a belief in, 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 in that. But, um, boy, I, you know, I, I just have so much admiration for, for people who are willing to be entrepreneurs and to take that risk. It is a risk. Now, I know you're saying that, you know, you can look at a business objectively and see whether or not it's going to be successful, but, um, you know, but still we, we have to overcome ourselves. And, you know, for me, my, my passion has always been about, if, if you will, or the, the thing that's fueled me about entrepreneurship is learning and, and, and doing something valuable. You know, the first business I was in was about e-learning and, and I, I really felt that it would be valuable if we could help people, you take a training program or whatever it is, and then how do you reinforce it over time? That's what we did. And then the second business I was in before I came to Dale Carnegie was a national health and wellness company. I felt like what we were doing was meaningful, was making a contribution. So 
I, you know, I, I do think that it's, it's really important for people, for entrepreneurs to be connected to some level of, of, of meaning in what they do. And certainly for me, that's, that's what, what fuels me. It fuels me what I do for Dale Carnegie. I, I, I love what I do for Dale Carnegie. And I'm, I'm with you that it's, it's nice to have, uh, kind of those, those passions for things certainly time with my family is, is very important. My, my faith is very important. My fitness is very important. And I'm very fortunate because I, I really love what I do with Dale Carnegie. And I, I hope that people do um, find, you know, purpose and meaning in their work, because if they do, I, I think they can love that too. Would you rather be at work or at home with your wife? You can only do one. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I guess it depends on, on <laughs> the, the day and the time, you know, yeah. um, you know, I, 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 I being with my wife and I love spending time with my wife. And, and at the same time, look, I, I, the, the company that I work for, I love this company and I love what we do. And, and I'll just tell you, I have people come up to me who say, I took a Dale Carnegie course 20, 30 years ago and it, it changed my life. And they, they, so look, that, that, that really fulfills me. And, um, so I, 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 you know, I, I would say, you know, I, I don't want to say I'm a workaholic, but I, I do find meaning and joy in my work. And I also find meaning and joy in my family. And I, I have, I make time for both and my fitness, you know, I like to run. I like to lift weights. I love to exercise, love to, to feel healthy. What's your you best know, so, time in the marathon, Joe? I know you've run all of the biggies, the Boston and the New York, Chicago. What's your best time? My PR was in Detroit in 2012. It was two hours, 53 minutes, and 54 seconds. Very impressive. And that was uh, well, that was that was 11 years ago. So I'm I'm not running anywhere near that fast anymore. But uh, I still do enjoy run, <laughs> running, even though I'm, I've slowed down and fought injuries. But uh, how about you? Are you a runner also? No, I. No, I, I don't. I enjoyed it as a child and in school and stuff. Uh, have you ever heard of Jeff Galloway? Of course. Yeah. He, he's famous. my first cousin. And so uh, having Jeff around is hard uh, if you're not running as hard as he is. So I went in other directions. Well, yeah, he's a great guy to learn from because he's someone who uh, – certainly was super fast uh, in his youth. And now I think has taken a different view of running and runs more for the enjoyment of running. So uh, I, I find him inspiring as I've, as I've aged and slowed. So uh, I don't know, maybe you should talk to him about it. It's, it's not too late to pick it up. Thanks for the, yes. <laughs> Joe, how if you like want that? to, if you want to, I don't want to, I'm <clears throat> going to continue with what I do. Joe, how do we find out more? Follow you online. Get a copy of Take Command. So DaleCarnegie.com uh, is where lots of information about Dale Carnegie. TakeCommand.com. Uh, I'm also active on Twitter and on LinkedIn. It's at Joseph K. Hart. Uh, those are the best ways to, uh, to track me and, and Dale Carnegie. Fantastic. Thank you so very much for being with us. Congratulations on the book and... I hope you'll come back again when the next one comes out. Thanks, Jim. Great talking to you. I appreciate you having me on your show. And we will be right back.
Well, that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's that's a, that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. Welcome back again. Thank you so very much for being with us. Very excited to introduce my next guest. Please welcome Glenn Gao to the show. Amazing career. And right now he is focused on the AI space. He has had involvement as a CEO himself, has been running businesses for 25 years and spent five years as a venture capitalist. He's also been a very successful keynote speaker. And right now he's focusing on AI and a board member as well. Glenn, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Jim, thank you so much for having me here. I'm doing great. I feel fortunate to be in the, in a place where I get to talk to CEOs all day about, about AI, and maybe that's what we'll do today. Well, what are they coming and saying, or what's their primary question? Do they just come in and go, oh, help me, help me? Well, <laughs> um, Sometimes they say that, Jim, uh, but more often than not, the question is, how do I think about this as it relates to my business, especially when my business is not an AI-first business? And, and it can be pretty scary when you first begin to understand the implications of how AI can change any business and will change every business. And they just want to have what, what help and understanding of what does that landscape look like? And then, most importantly, what should I do about it? So that's where we start the conversation. And what industries are coming to you the most? Is it across the board or is it what? It is absolutely across the board because it's more about what functions inside of a company are going to benefit the earliest from AI because every function is going to benefit. But the functions of sales and marketing, customer success, uh, software development, those are some of the functions that are going to benefit any company. And most companies have at least some of those functions. And so if you're in a competitive environment, which everyone is, we need to understand how can we leverage what's happening in AI today within my company so that I don't fall behind my competitors. All right, Glenn, give us a, an example of one of your clients. You can leave the name out or share it if that's possible. But will you walk us through sort of what their scenario was and what kind of suggestion you made and then what the outcome was walk us through the whole thing. Absolutely. So one of my clients wants to develop a new product into a new market and they're focused on running the business today, but they're, they, they believe there's an opportunity. So the, so what, what I coach them through is the process of leveraging generative AI tools to actually get to an answer very, very quickly. So the first thing we did, and we use, ChatGPT is the most famous tool, uh, but not the only one. And then there are other image generation tools like Stable Diffusion or Mid Journey, but there are other ones as well. So we're not limited to the ones that I'm gonna talk about. But essentially what we did is we got into a dialogue with ChatGPT about what it is we're thinking about doing. And there's a way to do this where you actually sit down and you teach ChatGPT how to think on your behalf. So step one was 
to ask ChatGPT to do a market analysis uh, to determine if this product idea we have has an opportunity out there or not. Is there demand for something like this? And ChatGPT goes off and does the research and comes back with answers. Now, importantly, it's well, always important to know. Let me interrupt. What? How yeah. quality is that? I mean, you can pay a consultant $100,000 to prepare an answer for that. And they're going to sure produce could. a 50-page document with interviews of 10 CEOs in that space. I know the guy who yes, does that. You could, you know, you could so. do that. You could do that. So what the way to think about ChatGPT is this is like hiring an intern, not the $100,000 consultant, but a summer intern. And you have to know that ChatGPT is going to make mistakes just like an intern would. And so anytime you're interacting with this type of generative AI, you can assume that the work is 80 to 90% complete but it's not 100% complete. It never will be. And it always has to have a human in the loop. So going back to my example, Jim, it came back and said, here are some market opportunities if you are trying to create a product in this general area. And what that does is it, you, you sit back and you look at that and you go, wow, there's some ideas I hadn't thought of there. I need to go do some more research on my own. So that was step one. Step two was to do a full market analysis and rank all the markets that we're thinking about going after based on certain criteria. And that was fantastic because within 30 seconds, we had a sense for where do we really, really want to focus. Now, again, we want to step in and we want to have a person in the loop to verify that information. There were two more steps. Step I'm number three was what is... Well, what, what does it look like to develop a product? What kind of people do we need to develop a product like this that we don't already have? And how much might that cost? The chat GPT came back with some estimates. And the final step was build me a marketing plan, including all the text and images for a website, text and images for social and email campaigns, including all the text. I'm going to use. So within 30 minutes, we had all of this done. And that could have taken weeks or months before we had AI. Oh, by the way, and we had images of what this product should look like and images of what the website should look like as well. So the, the multiplier in productivity is is uh, you just have to see it and experience it to understand how phenomenal it really is. And anybody in any business can do this. All right. So Glenn, how walk us through what you actually typed into the machine thing on that keyboard sure. thing to make all sure. of these things pop out. So sure. I think that you so. lost a lot of people when you said we had them do a blank, blank, blankety blank. That to okay. them, I mean, how do you tell GPT to do that in the exact Great. Walk us through that. Okay. Thank you for asking. I don't want to lose anybody. So let's pretend we're at the marketing section. So I'm going to sit down with GPT and I'm going to say, pretend you are a marketing expert. 
Even better, I want you, and I'm talking to Chappie T, I'm putting these words in. I want you to not only be a marketing expert, but I want you to be a marketing expert for the kind of product I'm thinking about and the kind of market I'm going after. And I also want you to be an expert in web design. Okay, so I've, I've narrowed, what I've done is I've narrowed the universe that ChatGPT knows about into where I really, really wanted to focus. And then I ask it a question. I might ask it a question like, what would be the best marketing plan in order to roll out this product within the next six months if my budget is $100,000? And so I've given it the context but here's something else you do with ChatGPT. Let's say it comes back and it gives me a marketing plan, but I scratch my head and I say, I don't think it got it quite right. So I can write back to ChatGPT and say, you know what, narrow the focus to just the Midwest of the United States for now. And it'll come back and it'll change it. It'll give me a better plan, narrowed based on my feedback. And I might give it even further refinement and say, you forgot to add radio to your marketing campaign. Add a section on how we might use radio. And then it will add that. So you're in a dialogue with the AI and it gets better and better as you are in this dialogue of refinement. And I think that's the important thing for people who don't understand and haven't used it to really grasp when you sit down and ask the computer to do something, you can say, no, not that make it a little more flowery and it will actually exactly. do that. And so it is, I, th I like the analogy of the intern. Is it a high school intern or a college intern, Glenn, or a grad yeah, school intern? Yeah, no, it's an MBA. Okay. Really? <laughs> it's an MBA. But yeah, it, it, but but it's their first job, Jim. Okay, so okay, how you know, mature are they? Will they, for example, start global thermonuclear war if given the chance? Now that AI, you know, kills all the humans and terminates us. Well, look, there are some there are some true risks of AI, and and and, and let me talk about those for a moment. Uh, really, the, the the first and important risk is it makes mistakes, and and everybody who who knows uh, about uh, using these tools understands it makes mistakes. So we have to walk in with an understanding that it's going to make things up. And that's, there's a danger there, right? So if it tells me to go spend $100,000 on a certain kind of campaign, and I haven't done the background research to verify this, I just might waste $100,000. So I can't, I can't risk that. But another risk here is job loss. Now, notice everything that I just described you can do might have taken months and a team of people to do. But if I can get all of that work done in minutes or hours. Now, if I have, a, if I have people on my, in my company, I have to ask myself, what am I going to do with those people who used to do this other work? Hopefully, I have more work for them in other areas. But I'm also going to discover that there might not be enough work for those other folks. It might be that these tools, ChatGPT just being one example of them, are slowly going to replace some jobs. And there are definitely jobs 
at risk. And the real message here for everybody is we have to lean into these AI tools and use them so that we are more productive with them as opposed to being replaced by them. So what does that mean? Does that in the Jack Welch sense of the MBA world, Glenn, does that mean that I, I can't be in the bottom 10%? I need to make sure I'm in the top 10% in terms of AI usage. So I'm not the one that gets canned every year. Yes. And here's the scary thing. It is the high end white collar jobs that are at most risk here. Very surprisingly, it's not, it's not just some of the low end jobs, which, which are at risk, but they always will be. But in this case, the skills that this type of AI brings to the party is replacing. That's why I used an MBA intern as the example, are replacing some of the skills that you used to pay a lot of money for. So think of a first year attorney. First-year attorney does a lot of reading of contracts and a lot of research to come back and say, here's what I've discovered to a senior partner. That work can all be done by generative AI today and other, and other AI, not just generative AI, but it can be done by AI today. So what do you do as a partner at a firm? Do you, do you pay as much as you used to pay for a first-year intern or a first-year um, attorney? Or do you may, maybe hire one less than you would normally? What about the software space, tech development? Are, are those jobs also toast? So look, the biggest change is happening in software development. Absolutely, the biggest change. And yes, I have a CEO who let go one of his senior software engineers I said, well, why did you do that? He said, because we're doing prompt engineering now. Meaning we are telling there are various tools like GitHub's Copilot, for example, that you tell it to write code and it writes code for you. And it gets maybe 40, 50, maybe even as much as 60% of the code written and, and done correctly. And therefore, if you only have a certain amount of code you're going to write, you don't need as many people. Now, in that profession today, there's still more demand than there is supply of software developers. But you want to be a software developer who, in your next job interview, says, I can be twice as productive as the next person because I use these tools, as opposed to someone who's left behind. And eventually, I think the supply... Uh, will be greater than demand for software and prices of this talent will go down. Yes. It won't go away, but it, it'll go down. What about architecture, Glenn? Can they design uh, a two-story, four-bedroom house or could they design a strip shopping center or a 61 story yeah. R, uh, go ahead. You know where I'm going. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And way better than, than humans can. And here's why I'm going to use, I'm going to use an example of a, uh, one of my favorite examples is designing a drone. Okay. So you can sit down and you can say, I want to design a drone, but what you do 
is you give it criteria. You say, I want my drone to be able to fly up to a thousand feet high. I want it to be able to carry a load of a thousand pounds, a distance of a mile or more. I want it to be quiet. I give it the level of decibels I want. I want it to cost less than $100 in materials. Now, I stop there and I say, go design me a bunch of drones. And it comes back with designs that humans never thought of before. And not all of them will be right, but some of them will be amazing. And we'll look at that and say, wow, I never thought of using titanium in my drone. But the AI suggested we look at that as an option. And then I can take that and I can further refine it. Just like in the dialogue you and I were talking about, I can say, okay, take this titanium drone you've just designed and um, figure out a way for us to be able to manufacture these at an even lower cost. And we'll get into a dialogue about that. Or I can say, give me, give me a few options uh, of different size drones. You gave me a small one. I want to look at bigger ones to maybe carry heavier loads. Again, you're in a dialogue with the AI and it's coming back with ideas for you. And they can be very technical ideas. If you're designing a drone, you need that. Is chat GPT so the platform for this as well? Or is it Dali or one of the other visual more visual uh, AIs? So, um, no, this is actually, so one of the, one of the things that gets missed is it's not all about generative AI. It's about lots and lots of other AI that's out there that doesn't get the headlines. Yes. You could advance what you're doing with, uh, this example you and I talked about by designing a drone with ChatGPT, but it's also true that there's specialized software already out there for things like building buildings or drones or automobiles that uses AI. Some of it's generative AI, but a lot of it is what's called traditional AI and uses a lot of data to verify that that drone can actually carry a thousand pounds a mile. Where does the creativity come from? So if you tell it to design a skyscraper, is it going to yeah. look like I took 12 skyscrapers and averaged them into each other and that's what it's going to pop out? Or is it actually going to be, you know, a, is there a possibility that we could get something totally brand new? Say like when the Chippendale building AT&T in New York with the Chippendale top that uh i'm drawing a blank on his name now the old bald guy oh, that doesn't limit it much um you know what, the building though you know it, are they gonna where's well, what about creativity well, well, so so here, here's that architect okay so i don't know that building but but the, the, the short answer to question question is absolutely it's phenomenally creative and the reason it's phenomenally creative is it's solving it's trying to solve a problem but it doesn't know the limits that humans think of okay so it makes stuff up this is where the advantage of making stuff up is like well i didn't i never thought you could build a building with a hole in the middle that's wide enough for a plane to fly through I mean, that's, that's, you know, uh, some crazy design that humans don't think of. It solves problems in ways that we don't think of. So the most famous example of all of this is um, when 
Google taught AI how to play Go, the most challenging game in, in the world. And when it was playing Go against the world champion, it made a move that everybody thought was a mistake because no human would ever make that move because it saw something in a creative way that no one else saw. And it turned out that that moved enabled it to win. This is what AI can do. It thinks way outside the box of the way humans think. And we want to take advantage of that because it points out new ways of solving problems. Very interesting. Yeah. The Chinese game of go I've never played, but, and I, I I'm curious if it's, it's more complicated than chess. It's way more complicated than chess. Oh my goodness. I'll have to check that out. I, I need to play that. I've seen a lot of the Chinese men in the parks play and stuff, but it's infinitely, I think it's, it's as more moves than there are stars in the, in, in the universe. That kind of complexity. But the point is, if I could just summarize one thing, all of these AIs are just tools, Jim. And, and what I say to CEOs is, look, you now have a new tool. It's a sharper knife. It's a better screwdriver. It's a, it's a, it's a better hammer. Learn to use these tools because they're here and they're available. And if you don't learn how to use them, your competitor will great way to wrap it up and i'm afraid we need to do that glenn how do we find out more follow online all that please well please visit my website which is simply my name glenngow.com g-l-e-n-n-g-o-w.com and i would love to chat with anyone who wants to learn more fantastic glenn thank you so very much great information and uh giving us a lot to think about i'm gonna have to go hire some interns so i can fire them there you go, Jim. <laughs> and we're out of time. Thank you so much. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, thank you. Oh. Just thanking you for the opportunity. We're out of time, but we're back tomorrow, everyone. And be safe. Go take care and make a million dollars. Bye now.